not a fan of grocery shopping. <laughs> Who is? It's, it's not so much the task of grabbing stuff off the shelf and placing it in the cart, although that in and of itself can be a little bit frustrating, darting up and down aisles on a cruel scavenger hunt. Half the time they even got what you're looking for, am I right? And then, I mean, I can, I can deal with that okay. And then you find out that, oh, they decided to rearrange the store. So it's, it's different than last time you were there. So that, that checklist as you were writing things out uh, at, at the comfort of your own home, all of a sudden your list is backwards and you've got to figure out, oh, how am I going to do plan B here? <sighs> Look, I can deal with that. I can deal even with the facade of, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't see you there, neighbor. You all do that. Admit it. Admit it. When you're so busy, you're so focused on accomplishing that that list, and you're like, I really don't want to deal with that person. I'm going to pretend like I didn't even see them. Who didn't see you over there, right? <laughs> it's just, I, you didn't have the energy for that, that exchange in that moment. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I can deal with all that. But, but as I start pulling things back out of the cart and setting them onto that conveyor belt... That's when it starts to get to me. The little number on the screen starts to creep up every time they go, beep, beep. You're watching that number grow, and you're, my blood pressure's going up a little bit with it. Every time that number grows a little bit higher, you know deep down inside that your bank account is just growing a little bit lower. Beep, beep. But the worst part about it, the worst part about that whole exchange is that as that thing is happening, <laughs> you feel obligated to make small talk with the person standing on the other side of that conveyor belt. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Nine times out of ten, that poor person has no interest in any small talk with you. They're just, they're just here for their job. They're just trying to make a paycheck, and they're probably tired of interaction at this point, right? And, and you both stand there with this, okay, let's just get this over with mentality, right? So you bring up, man, it's been kind of cold outside still, huh? <laughs> yep, and they do their best to pretend like the last 15 customers didn't just say the same thing. <laughs> Am I right? So <laughs> with the last bit of energy you have left, you make that painful purchase of your, of your groceries and then wish them a fond farewell. A half-hearted fun farewell half the time. Now, I might be exaggerating slightly, but I think you know what I'm talking about, right? I think we all have this thing happening in our culture right now where we have this, this moment where we just don't quite have the energy to engage like what we maybe used to. When I reflect on my demeanor in the grocery store lately, I've been convicted. Because I've had my head down running through the store trying to get that thing done. Not thinking about the fact that I'm interacting with folks that maybe God's trying to save. I don't know if you've noticed, but our world is a little bit crazy right now. Things are a little bit wild. Um, the NCAA just, just uh, crowned a biological male as the women's swimming champion. So that just happened. Uh, and... and People who are following Christ are facing an energy crisis. Do I even have the energy to engage in that conversation? <laughs> do, I, do I want to even bring that up, or do I just pretend like I didn't see that in the news this week? How do I engage in a Christ-like way, remembering that the folks I'm engaging with and, and, and I'm trying to talk to, 
Look, I know God wants to save the lost, but I don't know if I have the energy to engage with them in a Christ-like manner, right? Do we have the energy to do anything outside of the established ministries, that we've, the stuff we've already got set up, the stuff we're already doing here? I think sometimes when we, when we get done with what we're doing here, we, we have this punch clock mentality, like I've been working for God and it's been going really good here. Things have been going good here. But now that we're done serving for the week, I'm going to punch my clock and I'm going to just keep my head down as I go out into the world and try to avoid getting shot at, right? Do you ever feel like maybe the church in America has been stripped of its power? Lord God, we need you to be here today. We need you to open our eyes for what you have for us. Lord, I pray that this would be you and not me. Lord, we need more of you and less of me. Uh, Lord, open our eyes to your word. Help us to understand. Help us to wrestle with it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in a way, I get jealous when I look at the early church. Those people saw some crazy things going on. And, and they, they, I realized that some of the signs and wonders that were happening, it was like God stamping, okay, this, this New Testament stuff here, I need to stamp this here with miraculous signs in order for this to be like, yes, this is of me, right? So, so an expectation that that should be happening right now is maybe a little bit off some of the crazy things that we saw happen. I'm not sure that calling people from the grave is something that we should expect to see happen here today. But even through the centuries, you've got brave followers of Christ where that, where that signature signet ring thing that God was stamping uh, wasn't really happening anymore, and you just had people. You just had people that would stand there, and they were brave enough to die for what they believed in. And I, I look at them, and I'm looking at, and I'm looking at me, and I'm like, what, what am I missing here? <sighs> Do we still have here today what made that early church so electric, so powerful? I want to take a look at the book of Acts today. Mike, I'm not sure that my connector is actually working here. We'll see. I don't know if it's doing anything here. You might have to run this thing. All right, so... To this point, Acts 2.42, up to this point in church history, we've got like hardly anything, okay? So like Jesus literally just ascended into heaven. Peter gave a sermon. Everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And Peter gave a sermon. It converted like 3,000 people. That's the sum total of church history at this point. So um, there's not much here. These guys didn't know what they were doing at this point. The, all they, they didn't have the Bible yet. All they had was faith in Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures, right? They had some of those, but they, they, they just had a faith in Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit kind of guiding them. And they, they Jesus had literally just changed everything. These guys had no idea what they were doing. So I want to see what they were doing. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. It's working now, by the way. I got it. Okay. So they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
These people were meeting all the time. They were getting together frequently, right? They were doing life together. Every day they gathered, and, and, and in their gatherings, they were gathering for the sake of uh, learning and fellowship and, and communion. They were forming a community. These, these people were praying together and worshiping together, and they were witnessing expressions of Christ's power in big, big ways. They were united, and they were extremely committed to staying united. And life had been 100% changed by Christ. Life looked nothing like it did before. Everything was totally different, and God was adding to their numbers every day. Now, remember, it had only been a few weeks ago that these guys were timid Jewish people. I mean, they were, they were all of a sudden, these unschooled and ordinary men, they were, they were bold, Bold Christians, bold, fearless leaders that became apostles and eventually martyrs. So what changed? If we look in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul gives us a little clue on what was going on with these guys. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. And the new is here. Translation, these guys didn't look, they, uh, they, looked like thing, they looked at things like Jews would have looked at things until Jesus was resurrected. That was a game changer. When he was resurrected, they saw things differently. In him, they became completely new. The disciples knew that although Jesus had once been a baby in Mary's arms, he wasn't a baby any longer. The disciples knew that... At one point, he had been teacher, teaching alongside of them. He had been a carpenter. They'd seen him work with his hands. They'd seen him do all kinds of things. But he was not just a teacher anymore. They had seen him suffering on a cross, but he wasn't there suffering anymore. They had seen him laid in the tomb. They'd seen him in the grave, but he wasn't laying there anymore either. He was now ascended Lord. Jesus had received a new name and was to be addressed and regarded in a totally new manner. Jesus defeated both sin and death. And, th and this was a game changer. God had raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand, right? In the heavenly places, which is far above every other power. Both in this world and in the world to come, Jesus is seated far above every power. And that brings me to the first point I would like to make today. As resurrected king, Christ has supreme power. Sometimes we remember different points in Jesus' story, and I, I think we forget that Jesus didn't stay a baby. When we're celebrating Christmas and we're focused on that Christmas season, sometimes I think, it sounds silly to say, but sometimes I think the mentality we have is like thinking about this little baby in the manger, and it's, we, we, we forget that, okay, he didn't just stay there, right? And it almost seems silly to say, but, but I, there's, there's so much that we can learn from those stories, and while we're wrestling with the humanity that Jesus had, Jesus was both fully human and fully God, but he is fully God at this point. As resurrected king, Christ has supreme power. We have to understand that Christ is so much more than just an admired figure from history. The early church knew that Christ is present power. Not just a figure from history. Not just an admired figure from history. So, Paul shared this in his letter to, the, uh, to Ephesus. We're going to be in Ephesians quite a bit here today. So if you'd be willing to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be hanging out there for a little bit. 
starting in verse 18, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every other name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one that is to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, uh, fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God's power was demonstrated by raising Christ from the dead. Raising Christ from the dead exhibited more than just power over life. We already knew that God had power over life, but now God has overpowered sin and death also. And God has placed Christ above every ruler and authority, and everything is now under his feet. That requires great power. This is actually this this idea of God placing everything under Christ's feet. This is, this is a echoing Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a kind of a prophecy from King David. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Every authority, every power and dominion, everything past, present, and future, everything is placed under Christ. His power and authority is supreme. He is unmatched. But wait, there's, there's more here. I want to go back to verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance for his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power for us who believe. So in Christ, we, we know that we have hope, right? We, we have a share in his inheritance, which that sounds pretty cool, right? A share in his inheritance. But we can also share in his incomparably great power. That's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power not only will raise us from the dead as well, but, but is at work in us and is in us right now living in, 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 in us and through us transforming us into a new creation. Which brings me to my second point. Christ's supreme power is available to his followers. Look, if we have union with Christ, <laughs> we can share in his inheritance along with the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's the same power that's at work in us, right? That power is exhibited when we become new creations in Christ. The disciples, these guys were totally transformed. They were totally made new. They were changed. The immeasurable greatness of his power had transformed these timid fishermen into pillars of faith. When you look back at Peter, think about all the stuff that Peter did wrong. And we look at him now through Acts and what he did through his dying days. Oh man, what a pillar. He became a titan of faith, right? His power is to save. His power is to redeem those who are in bondage. And his power convicts us of sin and gives us the strength to turn from it and turn into the way of love. 
Now, church, I believe that your hearts have been enlightened. I believe that uh, that's maybe why we see things and we're alarmed by them. We see things in the world and we're alarmed by things that the world is not necessarily alarmed by. Uh, because Christians can see things that the, that the world just can't, right? The world seems to continually, intentionally darkening its understanding of things. I don't know, though, if we struggle with a lack of energy or a fear to engage. But it seems like we've been hesitant to engage with some of this stuff, at least in a loving Christ-like manner. But let me remind you that 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We have hope, you guys. There is power that lives within us. The early church was propelled not by just the memory of Christ, right? But by the immeasurable greatness of his power in those who believe. That active, thriving, living power that was not of their own. They were transformed. And they weren't just transformed individually. They were transformed into this vibrant community that was rooted in love. And it was so ridiculously irresistible that 2,000 years later, halfway across the globe, here we are today in Bertha. It didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that that early church should have been successful because they were still crucifying Christians when this letter was written. (laughs) The amount of opposition that was then versus now is ridiculous. But there is still opposition today. Even though the church has marched all the way halfway across the globe to this point 2,000 years later, we still have opposition today. And I think we're going to have opposition until we find every lost sheep, right? Every lost, every last lost one. If you are united in Christ, church, then if if there's oxygen in your lungs, our job isn't finished. Which brings me to my third point. Access to the power of Christ requires action. And the next thing I'm going to do is turn to another scripture. So I'm going to give, if anybody in here is taking notes, I applaud you. Way to take notes when the youth pastor's preaching. Woo! I'll give you a second to write down. Access to the power of Christ requires action. I'm not trying to call anybody out if you're not a note taker. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the end of Ephesians. Ephesians 6. Paul's going to conclude this letter here. Starting in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after, and after everything, after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with the feet when with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up your shield of take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Did you guys catch how many times he said stand in that little section? 
In like two verses, he said stand four times. That might be worth highlighting in your Bibles. When you see repetition like that, it's a good thing to go highlight those verses. Go highlight them because Paul is trying to say something here. All that God has achieved in, 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 in Christ and in defeating death and putting all powers under Christ, all of this is now brought home in this section right here as a practical application in the daily life of believers. So Paul starts the conclusion of this letter by, by calling readers to ready themselves for battle. Do you, do you ever think about the fact that we're at war, Church of God? We're at war. There are dark powers operating in this world, and, and we still, to some point, have a level of interaction. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, though. This battle is actually against the devil and those who are in line with him, forces that are opposed to God. So we're to be strengthened by the Lord and his incomparably great power. Christ has been seated above that enemy. And until Christ returns, the evil forces are still going to wreak some havoc here and there, albeit like, they're, they're, they're a conquered problem. He's still going to be a problem, but he's a conquered problem. Christ has been seated above. But until we are united with Christ face to face, we have a job to do. We need to be ready for this battle. So Paul calls believers into action here. And I think there's actually a few action items that we need to take here from this today. If we want to be able to access that power of Christ, we need to engage in some of these action items. So I'm going to go back and look at... Um, Verse 10, look, look back with me at verse 10. Paul starts out this section by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If we want access to the power of Christ, one of the first things we need to do is, first of all, identify the enemy. We need to identify the enemy. Paul makes a point to highlight here that our enemy is not human. Our enemy is not human. That's a pretty bold take because they were still crucifying Christians when he wrote this. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. They were Christian. They were, Rome was littered with, with crosses crucifying Christians. And Paul made a statement so bold as to say, people are not our enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. God desires to save those people who are acting against us. We may have to still deal with lost people, but they are not the enemy. They're lost and they need to be found. And there's a pretty good shot that God wants to use you in some way as part of the story and how they are found. So please don't do anything to destroy your witness before you've even had a shot. Our enemy does not want to see people found. He wants, to, he wants to destroy. That's what he does. And he wants to use whatever tool he can to keep people from God, including you if he's able. So, action item number two. We need to armor up all the way up. Paul doesn't say pick your favorite piece of armor and just focus on wearing that really well. Does he? <laughs> Focus on wearing your armor. Just, just one piece that you wear really well, and then the rest of it you can disregard. No, he says, therefore put on the full armor of God, the whole thing, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. 
So this idea of the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, this isn't a new idea at this point. Paul is drawing his readers to think back to the prophet Isaiah, which they would have been hopefully familiar with, (laughs) quite familiar with. Uh, The belt of truth comes from Isaiah 5. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. It says that righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. A more literal translation of that actually says that in righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Paul's highlighting imagery to his readers here that, look, truth should be wrapped around us tightly, around the middle of us. This, should, this belt should keep us from being bent over by the winds of false teaching, right? How about the breastplate of righteousness? That's another thing where he, he points to Isaiah. This, is, this he says of Yahweh in Isaiah 59, the first part of that verse, he says, And Yahweh, he put on righteousness as his breastplate. Paul's saying that living in an upright way, that in and of itself will protect you from the evil one. And and, and all that Satan wants to do, all of his schemes, but seeing, uh, dabbling in some sin and seeing that as no big deal, that can start a downward spiral. That can start a downward spiral in your lives. And and Paul is simultaneously not only just highlighting this, but he's also echoing an early point in his letter in Ephesians 4.27. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. Do all that you can to live in an upright way because that is going to protect you. We're going to move on in the armor here. In verse 15, he says, and with feet fitted uh, and with your feet fit, oh my goodness, let's try this again. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Guess what? He's again pointing to the prophet Isaiah. Check this out. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet who bring, uh, of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Paul's calling his readers to take the gospel with them everywhere. Always. No matter what the situation is. Even when you're at the grocery store. At the checkout line. Beep. Beep. Even when you're dealing with people who you disagree with. Even when you're on social media. Paul continues, verse 16. He says, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The concept of a shield of faith, that's not a new, that's a really a common thing. Like I, I was going to highlight a verse in the Old Testament, but that's everywhere. The Psalms are full of language of God as our refuge, the idea of God as a refuge, um, and, and, and our shield against that which seeks to destroy. But I did think it was interesting going all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 15.1, It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Faith in God is to be our shield. Paul uses this strong imagery to remind us that faith protects the believers from the attacks of the evil one. Much like a shield does, right? Paul wraps up this section. Take the helmet and the sword, right? Let's start with the helmet. Talk about the helmet for a second. This is again... Paul pointing back to Isaiah, he says, and the helmet of salvation will be on his head. What does a helmet do? Protects what? Protects your brain. It protects your mind. Helmets protect your mind. So, 
Think about this now. Knowledge of being saved and knowledge of, of, of what salvation is, salvation because of what God has done in Christ, right? That knowledge protects our minds as the enemy is trying to get in at us. That's what the helmets do. They protect our minds. We know that we are saved so we can be confident in battle. If we're wearing that helmet, we can be confident because we know that we have been saved. Last is the only offensive weapon listed. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? It's the only offensive weapon listed in the armor. Paul is pointing to another prophecy. Surprise, surprise. Isaiah chapter 4, or uh, 11, uh, verse 4. Look at this. He's talking about the Messiah here. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. I find it so interesting that this is like prophetic language about the word who became flesh. And, and the word of God is to be our weapon. He's saying that the word of God is the sword. And declaring the word of the Lord, that's up front fighting, you guys. That is, that is on battle lines. You can't, you can't get somebody over there. Think about, have you ever tried to slap somebody with a Bible through social media? <laughs> It's not an effective approach. But declaring the word of the Lord in a practical application way, face-to-face, that is up-front lines fighting. Declaring the word of the Lord is an offensive attack against evil powers. We're making ground into enemy territory when we're using the word of the Lord. And any ministry that wants to seek to make ground against the enemy needs to be armed with the only offensive weapon we have. We've got one last action item that we can look at here this morning, and then we're going to wrap up. The last action item is to call on the source of power. Paul wraps up this section of spiritual armor by, by well, we're just going to read it. To call on the source of power. See if you can count how many times he says pray in this section. We're going to read three verses. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I should declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul echoes that word, prayer, Five different times in that little section. Another point where it might be worth highlighting in your Bible. Prayer, prayer, pray, prayer. Can you tell that prayer is an important part of the equation here, folks? In order to access the power of God in Christ, we need to call on the source of the power. So, engaging the enemy requires power that we don't have on our own. And sometimes I forget that we, uh, I think that we forget about this. We don't have that power on our own. It's not a power from us to engage. We got to recognize that his incomparably great power for us who believe, it's still from him. So church of God, we got to pray. We got to pray all the time. Always keep on praying all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. All kinds of prayers. We are in an ongoing spiritual battle, and it requires prayer. As we wrap up today, I want to I point out one last thing uh, before we head out. Once soldiers are armored, once they're all armored up, what do they do? 
come together. Like when they're, when they're armored up, they need to come together and form battle lines. Soldiers on their own, that's dangerous. Do you suppose that maybe we should be doing the same, coming together? Because flying solo is a dangerous thing. And it's, 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 it's not a great situation. I, b- I believe that we should be engaging in this battle together. So this Friday, we're going to be doing something a little bit new. I realized that this was all very short notice because this is something that God's just been stirring in my heart in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I plan to do this more than just this time, but hey, this Friday, we're going to come together <laughs> and we're going to do a few things. We're going, we're going to come together, everyone intentionally armored up and ready for battle. And we're going to do a few things when we come together. Number one, we're going to sing songs. Think about when armies sing songs, when they sing songs of victory. Our battle's already been won. We're just finishing up the rest of the war, Right? So when we come together and sing songs, our songs are songs of victory. Man, in the name of Jesus, the enemy trembles. I love it. We're going to sing that song, Tremble. It's going to be on the, on the list on, on Friday. We're going to praise God for his great victory and shout of his great victory. Number two, we're going to share communion because the source of our victory, recognizing that, that seems like a good thing to do. So we're going to break bread, and we're going to uh, just share a time of communion together. Seems fitting. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to get on our knees together and we're going to pray in the name of Jesus for the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to pray in the name of Jesus against the enemy. That's about all we've got planned. It's not going to be complicated. It's going to be pretty simple. This Friday at 7, I hope you'll join us. But even if you're not able to, I'm going to ask that you remain alert and keep on praying all the time. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had together today. And God, I just pray that your church here in this place would access that power that you have for us. Lord, I pray that the enemy would be on retreat here, that he would be <laughs> stumbling over backwards trying to run from the people of God in this place as we proclaim your truth in this town. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, please stick around for our uh, special business meeting. It's going to be happening in here in just a little bit.